just standing in the back and just thinking about the words we just sang, help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. That's a, that's, help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Man, the, the church of the living God um, has a very unique, special, specific calling in the world that we need to be awakened to and we need to be aware of. And we're going to start to see some of those things even in the text today. And I'm just honored to be able to open up the scriptures again and preach. And uh, just a couple quick uh, follow-up announcements. One is... Um, Summer is quickly approaching. Do you know that? <laughs> All right, right, yeah. And with that comes, uh, we actually have a, a softball team that uh, FCC has. And if any of you are interested in playing softball um, semi-competitively, all right. Uh, please get in touch with Sean Bannon. He's kind of heading up the softball team this year, and so uh, we'd lead, love to see you uh, be a part of that. If you have a little bit of skill, that would be wonderful. Um, and then the second thing is, since none of us that are under the age of 25 can join the young adults Bible study, uh, we do have life groups that you could be a part of. So you're not excluded, all right? There's things for you as well. If you'd like to get plugged into a life group or a Bible study, we would love to assist you in finding out uh, where you might be able to be slotted. And so um, just because you're over 25 doesn't mean your life is over yet, all right? And so, <laughs> all right. Well, just to ease everybody's nerves, I want to let everyone know that in the message time today, there's not going to be any secret and messages encoded in the notes, okay? So there's no immature ciphered vendetta that needs to be decoded, all right, so just to put you all at ease, thanks for tolerating my juvenility, all right, last few weeks. Um, but there is no, there's no counter-strike in the message time today, but the message does pack quite a bit of a punch, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. And we're actually entering into a new section of the Gospel of Mark this week. Um, so far that we've looked at has kind of been centralized around Capernaum, and today what we read today is in Capernaum, but now we're going to see that Mark is going to broaden the horizon a little bit in this next segment of his gospel. Mark is going to broaden the horizon and show us that Jesus isn't just a local celebrity pastor preacher guy. His ministry is actually a lot more widespread, and it's going um, to gain some steam here in the Gospel of Mark. And so I titled the message that there's more feathers to be ruffled, because that's what you're going to see. Um, now Jesus is going to go out, and he's getting ready to, get ready to proclaim what his gospel message is all about. He's going to call some people to himself, set them aside to be apostles, then get ready to send them out. And so there's a lot more feathers that are going to be ruffled than what we've already seen. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 3, and we're going to continue on in this next little segment here, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, where Mark writes this down for us. You can follow along as well. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard that all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! 
And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts to receive the truth of this holy word. We just sang about that as a church, and now we just read from your word, and now we pray that we would be able to receive it into our lives, and may it rattle around for a bit and have a massive impact on the way that we think about you, what we're willing to do with that information as it relates to living our lives in the here and now. God, I pray that we would be impacted in a powerful way by the preaching ministry of your word. Thank you for speaking to us. We, we asked that, God, earlier, and now we pray that you would. And we trust in faith that you will. So may you add your blessing to those who read, hear, and then study and apply this passage of scripture this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was sitting in seminary class probably about 19 years ago um, when I heard a sentence that just really arrested my attention, and it really just kind of derailed me from learning anything else in the class that day. And I can't even remember what class it was in. I think it was a preaching class, but I'm not quite sure what class it was or even what professor it was. My mind slips now that I've gotten older. Anybody experiencing that? All right. Um, but there, I, remember, I remember the sentence that seized my attention that day, and it wasn't spoken by the professor. It wasn't spoken by the prof, right? It was spoken by a fellow student. And so seminary is kind of interesting because what you have is all sorts of people from all walks of life responding to the call of ministry and then wanting to follow up that call of ministry for specific training. And so seminary, at least in my experience, wasn't just a bunch of 23 to 27-year-olds trying to learn together. My experience had a wide range of ages in it. So there's people from all over the world and all over walks of life and all over age ranges that would come, hear the call of God for ministry, and then say, I need to be trained. And so with that, with those wide ranges of ages, there came like a wide range of wisdom and life experience. It's not guaranteed you know, you can be a foolish 50-year-old, but most of these seminarians had good heads on their shoulders, and they were really seeking after God. And I remember one of those fellow students, one of those fellow seminarians in this class saying this phrase, this sentence. He said this, there was a time when Jesus didn't mean as much to me as he does to me now. That was it. That was it. That's, that's, I, don't, I can't remember if we were like kind of going around just, just saying pithy statements or not, but that's what he said. There was a time when Jesus didn't mean as much to me as he does now, period. That was it. He didn't say anything after that, or if he did, I don't remember what he said. 
He didn't need to. The short, condensed sentence didn't need any more explanatory notes in my mind when I heard it. There was a time that Jesus didn't mean that much to him, and now Jesus means a lot more. And that thought just arrested me. It just, it seized the moment. The progression of his appreciation for Jesus could be palpably observed in the way that he said that sentence. He meant what he said, and what he said meant everything to him. Jesus never changed. Jesus says that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus never changed, but his perspective on who Jesus was did. And I think that that's what we need to see as this first point of our text today. Listen, Jesus is a way bigger deal than you currently think. So all of us come here on this February 25th, 2024, and, and what I'm saying to you is that Jesus is a way bigger deal than you and I currently think. Look at what the text says. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from, Tyre, from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. I already hinted at this. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus was a pretty popular person around Capernaum. Like he was, he was well known there. He called some initial followers there by the sea. He healed a man on the Sabbath there in that town. He even got Levi to leave his tax collecting booth to come and recline and dine with him. But all of that had kind of been localized and not widespread yet. So he was kind of like this local celebrity pastor preacher guy. And his reputation was somewhat contained, but the influence and the impact of who people thought Jesus was and what Jesus was actually capable of doing was going to be like what happens when you start shaking up a carbonated beverage, right? And then you suddenly crack open the top. Jesus' reputation at this point had been contained, but now his reputation and his influence was about to come shooting out like a geyser all over the place, and his impact was not just going to be regional, but around the region, surrounding the region, and all of Israel itself. So look at what Mark says. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. And then look at this. It's almost comical. From Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that was doing, they came to him. So look at this. Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. Now this is something that we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark. And starting in chapter 1, the, the crowds were clamoring for him. And the disciples said in verse 31 or 36, look, everyone is looking for you. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. And that's chapter 1. 
And so he often had to withdraw and go into desolate places. We've seen that over and over again in the Gospel of Mark so far. So here we see Jesus once again withdrawing, and this time he's going to spend intentional time with his disciples. So people, listen, this is an applicational point. That is something that we can't miss in the text We need to radically guard our time so that we can spend it in worthwhile ways. And so many of us are just wasting it. We're not not accounting for the time that we have been given by God. We need to guard it, radically guard our time so that we can spend it in worthwhile ways. That's what Jesus does here. He withdraws. He sees the crowd, but he's like, I need to spend time with my guys. Now someone... Somewhere once said, I don't know who said this quote, but I remember hearing it, Lord, save me from the tyranny of now. Lord, save me from the tyranny of now. We're swimming in the current of a culture that is increasingly demanding that we respond immediately to almost everything. We're never really off the grid. We have our attention constantly divided between this and that, and our thoughts are continually stimulated from the crack of dawn to late at day, right? Where we're just, we're just, we're constantly on. And Jesus had disciples to invest in, a circle of 12 that needed tended to, and so he withdrew, but look what happens. A great crowd still followed him. So what does that tell us? Well, guess what? That's just the way life goes sometimes. You look to get away, and a whole bunch of life comes demanding your attention. Has anyone ever experienced that? That's what Jesus had. He experienced that. He looks to get away to intentionally spend time with his disciples, and then life comes clamoring after him. But Jesus doesn't fret But he is prepared. Look at what Jesus says. He says, okay, I'm taking this time to be with my my guys, and they need me, but it's clear that everybody else needs me as well, so let's get a boat. (laughs) Get a boat. Why? So that I'm not crushed. Crushed. So he doesn't push the people away. But look at how brilliant Jesus is. He does make it so that he can simultaneously be available for them and not be crushed by their collective weight. We need to learn something about that. We need to learn how to retreat and withdraw, yet still be prepared to care for others that need something from the Christ who is dwelling within our hearts through our faith. We can't just say, well, like, I'm withdrawing, so I'm just going to ignore all the real needs of people. Jesus says, I'm going to get a boat so I can still not be crushed, but still minister. So Jesus got a boat ready. So I was laughing with myself about this this last week. Side note, if you ever secretly wanted a boat, now's your time to do it, right? Jesus did it. <laughs> There's your excuse, all right? But he didn't use the boat in a recreational or escape type of way. He used it so that he could minister to people. Hmm. So maybe there's something to apply from that. But back to the story at hand, all right? So if anyone wants to minister to me with their boat, I'll, I'll take them up on it. But look at what these crowds are coming. Look at, well look, I mean, sorry, look at where they're coming from, all right? 
And, and, and the way that Mark does this, it's so beautiful. And it's going to tie back into the Old Testament as well, and we'll make that connection point. But it's really from every part of the land of Israel. All right, they're, they're coming from like all over the place, and I don't have my pointer with me, but it's not that important, but just trust me, they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from Galilee, which is kind of like this localized place where they're at, so that's also kind of up in the north, but then they're also coming from Judea, which is way down in the south. They're coming from the center hub of Israel itself, the mother city, Jerusalem, and even further south and east, which is Idumea, which is where the Edomites were from, where Pastor Danny preached on a couple, so, a couple weeks ago. And then they're going to come from even further east, from beyond the Jordan, and then from around Tyre and Sidon, which is way up here in the northwest. So what Mark is trying to communicate to us in, in this and, 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 all these different places is, look, all of Israel was coming to him. This is a really big deal. And they were coming to him because they heard of what he was doing. He was upsetting the status quo for sure. How? Well, he's calling unlikely people to follow him. He's laying his hands on lepers. He's reclining and dining with tax collectors and sinners. He has the audacity to say, son, your sins are forgiven. That word's getting out like, who is this guy? Let's go check him out. All of Israel is going to come check him out. Not just this localized group of people, but now all of Israel is descending upon him. Jesus was a big deal, and people wanted a piece of what he was doing. And so what are the people doing? They're willing to relocate and make a pop-up shantytown just to be in proximity to him. They left where they were at to get closer in proximity to him. They, they were willing to relocate to go be where he was. They didn't just want to hear about him from a distance, but they wanted to personally experience him. So here's an applicational point for us. So many of us hear about Jesus from a distance. Like we hear about what Jesus is doing in so-and-so's lives, so-and-so's lives, and man, their testimony is amazing. We heard about what Jesus did there. We hear testimonies of other people. We hear sermons preached. We watch YouTube worship videos from other churches, but then we never experience Jesus ourselves. We look and say, oh man, Jesus is so amazing way over there. Why can't Jesus be so amazing here and here? And maybe the problem is that we really never leave where we are at to meet Jesus in a dedicated way. So I'm willing to go, I'm willing to go where you're at. We may never leave where we're at to meet Jesus in a dedicated prayer closet or a favorite chair in the morning with our Bibles open or even in this corporate gathering of his saints. We think, well, Jesus exists everywhere else, but not really here or in my prayer closet or in my favorite recliner reading, pouring over the scriptures or my Bible study or young adults group. Man, he's there. So if you want to experience Jesus and get up close and personal with him, you will have to be willing to relocate. And that's what these great crowds did, and you and I can come to him too. They were willing to say, okay, I'm going to go be where Jesus is. 
Because Jesus was a bigger deal than they currently thought. And Jesus is a bigger deal than you and I currently think. And guess what? He is worth pursuing. So relocate your like alarm clock to like 15 minutes earlier so you can get up and spend time with him. Commune with him daily, whatever it might be. Jesus is a bigger deal than you currently think and he's worth pursuing. But I was thinking about this. Perhaps there's some here that aren't convinced that he's that big of a deal. Maybe all of us to some degree are thinking, yeah, I hear it, but that's gonna cost. I have to relocate, that seems hard. Rearrange some things in my life to make him a priority, that seems difficult. So perhaps there's some here that aren't convinced that he's that big of a deal. Maybe some here are okay with their current appreciation level of who Jesus is and their experience of him. And so I want to share three sets of verses that can possibly change your perspective. Look at what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Colossians, he writes to them, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, amen? Listen to this one, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What do we say? Amen. Jesus is a much bigger deal than you currently think and have come to understand. And any old day now, there will be no room for maybe or uncertainty surrounding the validity of how big of a deal Jesus is. When you read these verses, you can't escape it. It will be indisputable and it will be unmistakable that Jesus really is a big deal. One day, it will be very clear, very evident And plain as day as we look upon the one that we have pierced. That's what the scriptures tell us. You'll see it. It's better to see it now. And so the crowds came to him because they're they're seeing these things. Like he's so compelling. We got to go be close to him. We're willing to relocate to be by him. The crowds came to him because he was worth coming to. And you and I should too. And if you decide not to then it will prove that we are dumber than demons. Whoa, there's the punchiness, right? That's that's what Mark is going to highlight here. He's going to say, look, don't be dumber than the demons, okay? If you want to walk home or go home after, you know, church today or recreate with somebody, say, like, what'd you learn in church? Well, I'm not supposed to be dumber than a demon, all right? Jesus is currently... A bigger deal than you currently think. And so don't be a dumber demon. Look at what Mark says. 
verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, so not only were these people coming from all over because they recognized he's a big deal, but whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Look at this. It's almost comical. Mark is saying, look, even the demons recognized his status. Even the demons knew who he was. They knew. They knew that Jesus was the son of God. And we need to come to him like the masses are doing in verses 7 through 10, but then also come to the same conclusion that the demons declared in verse 11. They cried out, look, you are the son of God. Well, what's the significance of Jesus being the son of God? Well, consider just maybe the most famous Bible verse, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus was the son that was given on our behalf as an expression of the so great love of God so that we could become children of God. That's pretty significant, I would say. That's a big deal. And the demons recognized who Jesus was. Look, you are the the son of God. And these demons knew who he was. But listen to this. Then Jesus strictly orders them to be silent? Like, what's the deal with that? That's kind of puzzling. Like, you just said true things about who I am. Now be quiet. Right? What about the catchphrase, any publicity is good publicity, right? Any news is whatever. You just need your name out there, right? Why not just say to the demons and then everybody who's present around this and say, look, you guys are right. I'm the son of God. He could have done that, right? So what's with the covert attempt to keep a secret identity here? And this is a theme that we've already highlighted in the Gospel of Mark, and you're going to see it again and again and again and again. There's a number of reasons why Jesus might be doing this, but the most compelling reason to me is that he wants to keep the role of the Messiah in its true and proper place. There's a lot of work to be done in training these disciples who is difficult to train enough on on his own, let alone when he's intentionally trying to spend time with them and like crowds are coming after him. He's like, okay, we got to get a boat, right? It's going to prove to be hard enough even without becoming like a celebrity type guy with swarming crowds. So Jesus is determined to define his messiahship and train other disciples about who he really is. And that's just going to take the process of time. And Jesus is determined to define his messiahship on his own terms in light of the cross instead of the light of cultural expectations. Jesus was coming to be a suffering servant, not a political activist. Their perception of the Messiah at that time and who he would actually be and what he would do were so vastly different. His kingdom was not of this world. It would turn this world upside down, but not the way that they were thinking. And so he kept his identity under wraps for a while. Because he needed, to, he needed to define his messiahship on his own terms and make sure his disciples got it. And think about this. Let's say somebody did end up believing in or following Jesus because of a demonic testimony. How weird would that be? 
Hey, how'd you come to be a follower of Jesus? How'd you come to believe that he's the son of God? Oh, a demon told me. (laughs) What? That seems a little off. Seems a little not right, right? So Jesus strictly orders these demons. He's like, shh. Don't say who I really am. And here's the thing. These dumb demons obey. They obey. So don't be dumber than the demons who knew that he was the son of God. They were willing to cry it out but then they were also willing to remain silent when they were strictly ordered not to speak. And so here's the thing. You and I can't let demons be smarter than us. And we shouldn't allow them to be more obedient than us either. Sadly, we so often live and function in disbelief in who God is, Jesus is. And then we still live in disbelief and we disobey him. These demons knew he was, and they were willing to obey him. What about us? Jesus is a way bigger deal than you and I currently think, and we don't want to be dumber than the demons and more disobedient than the demons. So what's the alternative? We must actually respond to his call and then actually follow him, and that's where we're led to next. We must respond to his call, and then we must actually follow him. We're going to talk a lot about this next week as well as we look part of this text again. But look what Mark highlights here in verses 13 through 19. It's beautiful. And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. He wanted these guys to be with him. That's the call of discipleship. And then he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what we see here, this is amazing. Mark knows the Old Testament. He knows the culmination of the whole story of Israel. And what he's going to do here is he's, he's compiling these stories. And what Jesus is doing here is very intentional as well. This is a recapitulation of the story of Moses as it plays out in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament. What Jesus does here by ascending the mountain and calling these people is not accidental. It's very calculated, it's very intentional, and it's in front of all of Israel's eyes as they've descended upon him. He's creating his kingdom right in front of all these Israelite eyes because people from all over Israel are there pressing in on him and then he ascends a mountain kind of like Moses did when he called and then he called 12 people whom he desired. Think about this, how many tribes in Israel? 12. 
All of what Jesus is doing here is a clap back. It's the fuller fulfillment of all that happened to Israel when they were chosen, called, delivered, and given a law to abide by. Jesus is very intentional here. So think back at the clap back of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at this where it says, the Lord your God has chosen you. This is what Moses is saying to these people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. These Israelite people were desired by God not because of how great they were. They were lovely because they were loved by him. That's why. And this love that they were loved with was a loyal, committed, steadfast love that would endure even though they faltered on the covenant and the calling in so many ways so often. And even after faltering and failing, God doubles down on his commitment to his people when he says many centuries later through the prophet Isaiah this, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Why? Because I've redeemed you and I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as an exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I'm going to pause there. Some of you need to hear that today. God looks you straight in the eye and he says, I love you. You're precious to me. That will change your world. And that's what he says of his people. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. People in exchange for your life. Fear not for I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. And I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory and whom I formed and made. The fullest extent of this demonstration of God's love to his people is being played out right in front of this gathering of people from every corner of Israel. They knew these passages. And Jesus then ascends a mountain and then he calls them who, those whom he desires and then he appoints them to be apostles, to be official spokespeople for his kingdom and he's getting ready to send them out. And his kingdom wouldn't be bound by the borders of Israel. It would expand 
extend beyond the boundaries and even come to us as well as we've been engrafted in, as the Apostle Paul told the Romans, or as Peter says to his right readers when he writes this, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter was there that day. Peter was summoned and then sent out, and we've heard what Peter has said. We're part of it. So Jesus walks up that mountain and he is announcing like a new exodus that he was going to personally bring into existence that would be available for all the inhabitants of the world. Amen? And this calling is coming to you and I as well. So here's the question. Do you hear it? It's a really big deal. Don't be dumber than the demons. They knew it too. Respond and follow The call is coming to everyone who has ears to hear it. He's calling you and I right now to be part of his kingdom. So don't be dumber than the demons. He's a much bigger deal than you currently think, and we personally must respond to his call. And I think there's one final thing that we need to notice here. This This hit me hard this week. The call that Jesus issued was a call to those whom he desired. That call also went out to a guy who would eventually betray him. And I think Mark wants to make sure that we see that in the final verse as he writes in verse 19, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let that sink in. What this tells me is this. You can't disconnect Judas from the other apostles that were listed. They're they're clearly listed there, right? All of them. You can't disassociate Judas from all the other apostles that were listed. And Jesus called all the other apostles because he desired them. And he called Judas because he desired Judas as well. Jesus desired a man who would eventually betray him. And if you don't think that the love of Jesus is a big deal, let that sit for a bit. Because we've all kind of been there, done that, turned our back, disassociated. All the apostles actually did, right? They disassociated from Jesus. I never knew the guy. If you don't think the love of Jesus is a big deal, memorize Mark 3.13 and Mark 3.19 together and then be ready to pick your job off the ground because this is what you'd have to memorize. Look at this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That's quite a compilation of verses. 
he desired the one who would betray. And he desires for you and I to come as well. So God, I pray that as we move into a time of musical response, that we would recognize your great love. God, I pray that we would just be floored by it. I pray that it would hit us hard. Because God, in so many ways, we know when the rest, with the rest of the story that all the, the apostles abandoned you. They struggled throughout the duration of their entire discipleship experience with you and disobeying and not believing things and kind of being hard of heart. And we obviously see Judas, the ultimate act of betrayal and selling you over for 30 pieces. God, that's, that didn't have any effect on the fact that you still desired him. And so God, I pray that in response to that amazing love of God that we see on display in this text, I pray that it would be our desire to honor you that with all of our heart that we would long to worship you, to live for you, that all that we have within us, that we would just give you praise. God, that we would lay down our lives for you as you've laid down your your life for us. And God, I pray that you would have your way in us too. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we close with one final song and a benediction. This is my desire. This is my 